0: Good to see everybody. Why don't we pray one more time, ask God to bless our time together as we study His Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for waking us up, for giving us life and breath. Father, as um, Your Scripture says, that You give us all things freely to enjoy. What a marvelous God You are, gracious God. And uh, Lord, we thank You that You have uh, put us into the kingdom of Your Son, the kingdom of light. And we pray that You would help us now to understand Uh, the nature of your kingdom as we understand the the teaching of your word and what it says. We pray that you would please help us to discern the importance of the opening um, prologue of Genesis and what it says about your relationship with man. Father, give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we are uh, starting a new uh, covenant administration or covenant Um, in scripture, and we are talking now about the covenant of works, what I've entitled the holy standards of covenant theology, the the holy standards of covenant theology, because what the covenant of works shows us is the need for keeping God's law. So why don't we turn to Genesis chapter uh, 2, really just Genesis uh, 1 and 2, or we're going to be there uh, for some time. Not surprising, uh, we studied quite a bit of this in biblical theology when we looked at protology. We talked about how foundational um, uh, the first three chapters of Genesis are, uh, and they're extremely foundational. Uh, they they really set the pace for the rest of Scripture. I mean, that's almost. Not an overstatement, but um, it's just an amazing uh, section of Scripture. Now, when we're talking about uh, the covenant of works, uh, theologians point to this passage of Scripture uh, to tell us that this is where covenant of works can be discerned, okay? Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Why don't we read that um, just to kind of get it in our system, okay? Beginning in verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And so, isn't it amazing that this early on in man's existence, he already has God's commands, God's law. Uh, God is already already putting, uh, if you would, uh, sanctions on the man's life, stipulations that he has to follow in order to be in fellowship with God. And so what is involved in the covenant of works? As today, we're going to mainly uh, define the covenant of works, and, uh, and then we're going to look at some of the components of the covenant of works. And uh, let me just define it this way, okay? The covenant of works is that initial historical covenant of God, uh, the covenant God made with man, excuse me, in the garden of Eden whereby the promise of eternal life was given to Adam uh, and his posterity upon the condition of perfect obedience to God's commands. Let me read that again. The covenant of works is the initial historical covenant God made with Adam or man in the garden of Eden whereby the promise of eternal life was given to Adam and his posterity that 's uh, his humanity upon the condition of perfect obedience to god 's commands uh, that 's kind of the uh, that 's kind of the burden of uh, of this theology is to substantiate that. How do we prove all of that um, because admittedly let 's just uh, look at the text. Nowhere in verses 15 through 17 do you find the promise of eternal life. You see that? It doesn't say anywhere there that uh, do this and you will have eternal life, right? So in a in a sense, the covenant of works, much of, of, of what is taught in the covenant of works is based on deduction, and it's based on exactly how God um, uses this original arrangement with Adam, the significance that it has for the rest of Scripture, and um, and things like that that really help us to see uh, the components of the covenant of works. Now we'll get to that 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 idea of the of the promise of it. But let's talk for a second about the various components. Okay, here if you have the notes, I identify that there are parties, there are promises, or there's a promise, right? What's the next one? If you have notes, there is a, a probation. That's right. And, uh, let's see here, and there is a penalty. You guys know what I'm doing, right? P, 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 P. I'm a stickler for that, I can't help it. That's right, and there's a prophetic sacrament. And I alliterated all of this, obviously, just to make it easier for us to understand what is going on. Uh, in the covenant of works, and the very first thing is that there are parties involved, just like with any covenant, when there is an agreement that is made between, you know, in order to form a covenant, you have to have parties to the covenant, right? Uh, Unless the covenant is just a, well, no, there's always parties to the covenant. Uh, I was thinking about the covenant of creation, where really the covenant is made with Noah, but it's really a creational covenant, but it's still made with all of humanity. I mean, all of humanity is the recipient of that covenant Uh, work of god but here who are the parties involved in the covenant of works well we know god is right and who else adam Adam. um how come none of you said adam and eve what's that that's right she wasn't created yet and why do you think god made a covenant just with adam because of Christ, it, Trish is like. I know that's the answer to all of his questions. It's because of Christ, <laughs> right? You won't be wrong if you say that. You know, remember the, triangle. remember the triangle. That's right. Remember that's like remember the Alamo. Remember the triangle. Yeah, that's right. But remember Christ, because that's right. So God, I just think curious, right? That God makes a covenant. There's, you know, He creates Adam, and then after this, He creates Eve. There's only two people. God could have made this covenant with Adam and with Eve if he just waited a little bit, right? But he does not. He makes a covenant just between him and Adam because, of course, we understand from Scripture that Adam is the federal head of mankind. Uh, what does it mean to be the federal head of mankind? Yeah. What's that? He's the represent. What kind of representative? Could you elaborate on what kind of representative he is? Um. You're not wrong. Like the covenantal representative mm-hmm. of the race. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, I'm just wondering, like, when we understand his representation, what do we, how does he represent mankind? I'd say, like, the thorough, right? As he goes, so we go. So if mm-hmm. sin is going want his own mankind in the sin, right? If, right. If he would have kept it, right. the deduction is that then he would have been blessed as well as a result of his obedience. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He, he represents, you know, you know here's here's Adam, right? And, oh gosh, you guys know I'm not good at this, right? And then this is all of humanity, right? All of humanity is in Adam. So whatever happens with Adam, that's what's going to happen to humanity on the basis of this covenant arrangement. So in one sense, yeah, Adam is like the covenantal representative, or we could even call him the legal representative for mankind, Right there's a forensic aspect to Adam's representation uh, because it involves God's law. So when there's law involved, now you're entering into forensic theology, where there's now there's going to be uh, now there's going to be the potential for a penalty, right? Uh, and and that's certainly part of the covenant, right? So God and Adam. Now this is what's interesting about the fact that God is. One of the parties that's involved is that he is absolutely sovereign in this covenant, right? Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man. You see that? He took the man and he put him into the garden. It doesn't say the Lord God asked the man, right? Would you like to enter into a covenant with me? <laughs> that's not what it says. It it just says he took him and put him in the garden. And And in a sense, he does that because why does he have the right let's just think within the confines of Genesis 1 two and three why does God have the right to do that just to take Adam and to put him in the garden and tell him you know this is the this is my law he created. yeah he created. that's right so oh, man. so what's that oh, man, Romans, uh, yeah. that's right oh man what are you right I mean so um yeah who who are you to reply to the potter right yeah but In Genesis, he's already established his sovereignty. Uh, Look back at Genesis chapter 1, right? He begins with with an announcement of of divine fiat. Verse 6, then God said, let there be. Right? And then, what does it say? And there was. Right? Uh, there, There was morning, second day. So whatever God says, he creates it. And then you have that repetition of of good pronouncements by God cre- in creating everything, culminating in what day? The Sabbath, that's right. Somebody eked that out. But that's right, it ends in the seventh day, wherein God what? God rested. And, and we studied this in biblical theology and protology, and I'll give you a lot of points if you... Uh, imaginary points, if you can tell me something about what it means for God to rest on the Sabbath day. Jonathan? Um, I think you brought out in that study how the rest is not always tired, but more the rest spoken of of a king who is Mm. sitting on his throne, Mm. that since he's at rest, he's not at war. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're talking about God's throne, what does that imply? You know, where's the throne? In heaven, right? Uh, But also, when you're talking about a throne, you're speaking of the royal court, the divine court of God, right? You're speaking of God's temple or his sanctuary, right, where his throne is. After all, that's how the temple is patterned. It is patterned after the heavenly reality, and that's why you have earthly temples being built with a mercy seat that represents the throne of God in the temple, because God is enthroned in his temple. So what does that tell us about the original creation? That the original creation, in the sense, like G.K. Beale has argued, the original creation is is a it's like a it's like a a small a microcosmic temple of the heavenly reality, right? And so when God rests, and here's another interesting thing, the background, real quick, Mike, I'll get to you in a second. The background of of you know the time frame of Genesis and the ancient Near Eastern uh, people that lived back in those days, it was very very. Um, It was very customary for kings to uh, defeat their enemies, conquer, place an image of themselves into the temple, and then enthrone themselves next to that image. So uh, he has shown how that kind of follows the pattern here, that God creates man on the sixth day, places his image in man, puts him in his creation, and then sits enthroned on the Sabbath day. Just really remarkable. So he goes from sovereign Creator, right, to sovereign Covenant Administrator, Um, and that's what's going on there, Mike. This was an index that I see God will be rested. It's telling me that He sat on His throne with all authority and power, and all will bow and worship and praise Him and give Him glory and Mm -hmm. honor for all eternity. That's what I see. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're saying is that you know that the, for God to rest is not a passive; it's not pastime for God, right? It's actually uh, God sitting enthroned above all of His creation, enjoying His creation, right, and exercising His sovereignty over creation. You know, it's a beautiful picture. So that is the context into which man is. Put into a covenant with God. He's in God's land. He's under God's law. He's in covenant with God, right? He's been given God's promise. All of these things. Questions? Yes, sir. I was going to say, like, what Jesus saying? It is finished. That's mm-hmm. like, him, like, we'll be able to titles together as well. Like him saying that he's finished. Like he completed the covenant that when he was giving. So. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I I would say that. I mean, there are some. Creational uh, ideas that are connected with the life of Christ, the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, especially the resurrection of Christ. Uh, but when it, he says it is finished, I mean, I would associate that especially with the covenant of redemption, right? That when he says it is finished, what he's saying is that he finished the work that God gave him to do, which reflects some sort of pretemporal agreement between Father and Son. That's why theologians say there is some sort of eternal agreement between the Father and the Son where the Son had to agree to accomplish a certain amount of work uh, to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, right, in, in on behalf of his people. And so uh, that's why Jesus is saying it is, it is finished, you know. Uh, so much here, but um, let me see if I can. I want to take our time. Um, I have a propensity to rush. I don't know why. Um, i think like you guys are getting bored so i try to rush a little bit i'll try not to let me just say this <clears throat> that what we're also seeing in the covenant of works in a sense is something of something of a reflection with the covenant of redemption so just like do i mean do i have any warrant to say that that's a question right so how does the covenant of works reflect the covenant of redemption anyone what are, what are some ways that we can connect the two? Because I'm convinced that the covenant of works on earth is an absolute, I would say it's almost like a replica of the covenant of redemption in heaven. Right? It's almost like well, that's where the logic comes from. Yeah. So there's a requirement of obedience. It's a requirement of obedience, exactly. So at the very essence of both covenants is a call to obey. Right? Anything else? the promise the promise is the same and 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 if we if we're a little bit more specific right if we're we're talking about the promise of so what was Jesus promised in the covenant of redemption beyond eternal life or how what is the, what is eternal life in the covenant of redemption what is it situated in specifically right he's promised eternal life and he's promised what a kingdom And so what I'm saying is that what's going on with Adam is not only Adam is Adam being promised eternal life, I'm saying Adam is being promised the eschatological kingdom of God, right? And that that is what all of humanity would have eventually become. What was Adam's purpose in this covenant? Um, what, What does he tell him to do? Verse 15. Specifically, just to make it easy, what do you say he was to cultivate and to keep it, so he was to work in the garden that God put him in right and 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 that's why you know theologians would say that that you know Adam was something of a vice regent to God he's kind of like an underlord of God, God gave him certain Uh, uh, responsibilities and duties to fulfill and really what this amounts to if you couple it with the original mandate that was given to Adam remember that go to chapter 1 right what does he tell him yeah dominion but what else be fruitful and multiply and so Adam is expected to produce a humanity and to cultivate and to keep the garden but if he's continuing to to, to be fruitful and multiply and continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and grow. What, is God, what is God really saying for him to do? Let's say he didn't fall. He just kept multiplying. He just kept cultivating. Where would it have ended? Huh? Well, it probably wouldn't have ended, right? <laughs> but what's the picture that is given? The picture that's given is that Adam was to expand Eden to the ends of the earth with his people. He was to cultivate and to really spread the the temple presence of God everywhere, right? And what do you get in Revelation? Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we are given that exact picture, right? That the temple of God is no longer bound to an architectural uh, building. Now it, it encompasses all of the cosmos. And so what I'm saying is that's the original design that was given to Adam. That's the potential that he had, was to spread the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth as God's vice regent given these responsibilities given these commands these duties and that, that that's and so therefore i think in the covenant of works and in the covenant of redemption the same kingdom is promised to both adam and christ and um any questions comments any connections yeah there was um, Threat of, um, punishment for disobedience with the covenant of redemption, no though, there is here, if Adam was to disobey, he would surely die. Right, yeah, that's right. Even though, um, but there was right, and in order for him to accomplish his work, he would have to bear the penalty of the sin of humanity. So, in a sense, it was like some people define a covenant as a bond sealed in blood. Right? So we can ask, like, where's the blood in the covenant of redemption? Well, well, it was in the fact that Jesus would spill his blood, shed his blood. The covenant of redemption is really, I would say, clearly, clearly manifested in the new covenant. You know what I mean? That there, right, we see who the true medi- mediator of God's people is. We see, right, we see who it is that's going to accomplish redemption. And it's all going to happen in his blood. Not for his sin, right, but for ours. So, yeah, it's. Yep. So what would be the penalty for not accomplishing the covenant of redemption? No, there is no penalty for not accomplishing the punishment, but there is a, in a sense, there is a um, there is a punishment that is exacted, right? As part of it, that's part of his work, is to undergo the penalty of all of the broken covenants uh, that, that God ultimately gave. Does it imply that it was impossible for the covenant of redemption to be broken? I think so. Yeah, I definitely think so, yeah. It's kind of the opposite of the covenant of works. The covenant of works, it's like, was it possible for the covenant of works to be upheld? (laughs) I don't know, you know? I think the covenant of redemption secures the idea that man would fall, but that God would give a gracious covenant, we're not there yet, right? So that he would fulfill the promises that were made originally in the covenant of redemption. This is why God is absolutely sovereign. You know, this is why um, certain theologians identify God here as monopleric, which means he moves unilaterally. He moves on his own, you know what I mean, in these covenants. He doesn't need man's help. It's, you know, in order for him to fulfill his, His uh, you know, his purpose or to form these covenants, he does it all on his own. Um, o. Palmer Robertson says, the, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth dictates the terms of the covenants. That's absolutely Right. Um, any other questions? Anything else? For those he he doesn't need man's help. Okay, just say that. So those he is called, it's mainly his love, his grace, his mercy, he's bestowed on those he has called to do his work. Right? Is that that's his nature Well God calls man, you know, and calls him into He doesn't need us, that's right. That's right. That's why some would say even the covenant of works, if you think about it, is very gracious of God. Because, I mean, think about it. So God tells man in the covenant of works to obey. If man obeys and the promise of the covenant of works is right, which is eternal life, which it is, right? God is under no obligation whatsoever to give Adam eternal life upon obedience. Why? Because obedience is Adam's natural state. That is what he ought to do no matter what, right? Just because he obeys, God is not under any compulsion to have to give him eternal life, but he does, right? Because he's gracious, you see? So, yeah, there's a book that's written, it's called The Grace of Law, you know? Even the law of God in one sense is a very gracious uh, act of God, you know what I mean? Um, yes, sir? See, one of the lines I think of... Uh, Luke 17, 7 through 10, where he says ultimately in verse 10 So when you have done all that you were commanded to do, say, We are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty. Mm. Yeah. So that's even the case now, right? Mm-hmm. When we have done, it's, it's, we're only doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Um, yes, sir? Uh, I think, according to Robertson, and I don't understand all this, but. Isn't there a sort of a ceremonial bloodletting at the inauguration of the covenant? Um, there is for some. It's a reminder of, of penalty. Yeah, some, sometimes there is a. Is that not a requirement. The ceremony. The bloodletting at the inauguration of the covenant. It's not required necessarily. So there is um, But it could be, but it could be implied, right? And I think it is implied here by, in a sense, this is this is like a maledictory oath that Adam is being told to agree to when he says to him, "You will die," right? Every covenant requires blood. Yeah. At the breaking of the covenant. Mm Mm-hmm. But the, but not at the, right? Well, there wasn't here. No, there wasn't here. Right. Yeah, there's. It's symbolically present. <laughs> it's really a covenant. That's all. Oh right, right. Because I don't think he talks about the word covenant, covenant. Well, you know, if you think about the covenant of David, there's not a, um, there's not a, a blood ceremony there either. You know, as God makes a unilateral covenant with David, you are my son. I will be a father to you. You know, and promises. What's that? Well, the aim Covenant there is. You know, there is a ceremony, you know, where you, you split the animals in half and walk through the path. Yeah. Um, going on, uh, I guess, your previous question, how does the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption kind of fit together? Is it, in a sense, saying that the covenant of redemption fulfills the requirements of the covenant of works through Jesus and his Definitely. active and passive obedience? Yeah. And therefore, him dying on the cross is the... Mm-hmm. The, the, the yeah of the yeah it's almost like the covenant of works shows us what god requires so just think of law and gospel right the covenant of works is showing us god is holy his standards are perfect man cannot break even one law or he's doomed right so if that's the case and if adam in a state of perfect innocence not perfection but he was in a state of perfect innocence even in that state, which just kind of plays with our head, right? Because we're like, "Well, if he was perfect, if he was good, and if God of evil, why did he sin?" Right, <laughs> right. So God created him with the ability in his will to change. Right. So I would say, while the covenant of works shows us the standards of God, right, the covenant of redemption secures that God's justice and His holiness will be meted out, and it will be satisfied. You know, yes, yes, ma'am. And I just want to add what he said the scriptures, that go with what he's saying. Is, mm-hmm. you know, um, Romans 5, uh, 14 and 15. Yep. Um, it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded from it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's the principal text. You know, That's one of them anyway. There are several. Um, and we're going to get to those. We're going to get to the exegetical foundations of this covenant right now. We're just kind of introducing it. You know what I mean? But we're going to touch on each key principle text of this covenant, you know, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is big because it, it, it shows us the eschatology of Adam, and we'll probably get to that a little bit now. But um, okay, so just in terms of the promise of eternal life, let's get back to this to this promise, okay? What is the promise of the covenant? Life. We could say life eternal, right? And how do we know that if the scripture does not, in fact, say that? Well, this is where we have to do some deduction and we have to bring the cumulative data together and to see what is going on. There are many reasons why we should conclude that there is uh, a promise of eternal life and the first one has to do with the tree of life. Yes, ma'am. Because it says, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of or evil, you will die, which implies if you don't eat of it, you're going to go on living. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's an implication there, right? And it seems as if if they wouldn't have eaten of the knowledge of uh, the the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, they would have lived. The question is, is what kind of life would it have been, right? Would would, Would it be life in this world? Is that what was at stake there? I say no. It is not life in this world that God was promising to Adam. Right, It is eternal life. The same thing that you and I are looking forward to right now, eternal life, that is exactly what Adam was looking forward to. It wasn't life in Eden. So, so what are we saying is that at the end of the day, had Adam perfectly obeyed God at some point in time, and I know this is crazy, but at some point in time, somehow the world would have transitioned into the eschatological new heavens and new earth. Somehow. So, so glorification. Yeah. glorification. That's right. Yeah, so, Almost glorification. as a matter of fact, and moving forward just a little bit, and just to tease it out a little bit, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says that in terms of the glorified resurrected body, in contrast, in comparison, Adam in his, watch this now, Adam in his pre-fall condition, pre-fall, c- compared to the glorified body is in a, a death-like condition. That is how far superior the glorified body is, right? That Adam represents only that which is earthly, right? And we'll get back to him. They're like, oh, really? Oh, where? where? <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay, so that's what about the tree of life? In the covenant, theologians claim that the tree of life is a sacrament, the prophetic Sacrament, so jumping ahead just a little bit, but we need the tree of life right now in order to substantiate the promise of eternal life in the covenant of works. Certainly, the tree had the ability to give life, right? Now, don't judge me too harshly when I say that. When I'm saying that, I'm meaning that there's a huge theological debate as to what I just said. The tree of life had the ability to give you eternal life, okay? Augustine and some of the older patristic fathers would argue that the tree of life actually possessed mystical power and that it itself, almost, almost in a sense independent of God, had the powers to give you eternal life. So, you see what I'm saying? So all you need to do is take the fruit, boom, and you be glorified. Whereas most Reformed theologians would say, no, no. The tree of life did not possess any sort of independent power of life itself. It was a token of that life. It was meant to be partaken of once eternal life had been granted by God. And and, and so I side with that position um, mainly because that's what you see actually played out in Scripture. After all, we have eternal life, don't we? Will we eat of the tree? Let me ask you this. When did you eat of the tree of life to get that eternal life? (laughs) Right? You did not. But here's the other thing. We also will have access one day to the tree of life. You see? We already have eternal life, but we will be able to partake of the tree of life as that symbol or that sacramental sign of God that we have eternal life. Yes, ma'am. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 22, verse 19. (laughs) I'm way ahead of you. (laughs) Huh? It leaves has the healing of the nations, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's not just the tree of life. It's the tree of the kingdom of God. Think about that. That tree was, was meant... By God to be partaken of in the context of His everlasting kingdom, um, because that's that's what Revelation is talking about—the kingdom of God, with all comprised of all the nations of the world. Yes, sir. I see the, prophetic. I see Christ. the kingdom component is important because it sets up the idea that it's not just eternal life like this, just some like ethereal existence, okay, floating around in clouds, of space, right, or something like that. But it, it, it's a kingdom. We have a king. There is a rule. There is a people. There is a city. There is a there is a nation, if you would. A, a priesthood, right? It, it, there there is an economy. In other words, it, it's an organized uh, kingdom. And this is not just you know everybody running around heaven like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. You know. <laughs> oh look at this! Oh look at that! Oh, look at you know we're just going to be like wandering around. You know. Exploring planets or something like that, you know what I mean Well maybe we will but what I'm saying is that <laughs> we're still under the dominion of Christ you know what I mean We're still under his law under his ruleship. there's order okay there's order. we're not just floating around in another world okay uh, Did I miss somebody's question? Yes, sir. So when you look at like Genesis 3.22, so when God... Yeah, I was going to go there. They leave the garden so they don't eat of the tree. Correct. So how do you reconcile that one huh the tree didn't have some sort of magical power, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That that That's the hard one is that... um that that's the That's the tough text right there is that somehow the tree would have perpetuated their life in that state. So... It's almost like maybe the tree granted immortality, right? But it wouldn't. The tree would not have granted them eternal life. It, it's probably that the tree would have simply given them immortality in the state in which they were in. They wouldn't have been glorified by the tree. You see what I'm saying? So uh, that's that's a mystery, though. That's a tough one. I don't know the answer to all of that. You know? Yeah. Would it, would it have been maybe something to where that was a promise that God made and so he is bound to fulfill his oath if they were to take of that tree that he was bound to give whatever eats of that tree eternal life? And so if they were to go and partake of that, then God is almost bound to fulfill a promise if, if he would have you know, place it in that. Yeah, pr- quite possibly. Hmm. Yeah, quite possibly. Um. What we're saying is that the tree grants eternal life, <laughs> right? Without all the qualifications, right? Because it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, and this also will get to our next point a little bit. Look at, look at Revelation 2, 7. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, that's a big one, I will grant to eat of the tree which is in, uh, which is in the paradise of God. Isn't that Interesting. Um. it's almost like the tree has been transplanted. Right? I mean, where's the paradise of God, guys? Now, right now. Huh? It's not here, right? We're not going to go on any like excavations looking for, you know, like searching for the long lost ark. <laughs> what was that? I said it's not on the Israel trip. <laughs> Depends what rabbi you talk to. <laughs> but notice notice when you partake of the tree of life when you overcome, so again, that suggests that Adam too had to overcome in order to eat, he had to pass that probationary period of time where he was tempted, tested, and tried right in order to eat uh now they debate as to what time okay would he you know how long would he' have been tested you know when how long was the the probation for we don't know we're not told um, I don't think it's like a super long time. I don't think we're talking eons of time here. Um, Yeah. Yes, sir? Because of Christ? Hey, brother, I'm with you. I can roll with that. How could they disprove it? That's right. (laughs) Can't refute us, right? (laughs) How's another way that we know that, that the covenant of works possesses a promise to eternal life? It's a little bit of a controversial statement, but you guys are used to that. Um, I think the covenant of works is actually typological. I think the covenant of works is actually typological of another covenant administration. Do you know which one? Anyone? Anyone? Come on, go ahead and say it if you know it. No, it's another covenant administration. The mosaic. Now, some people don't agree with that. Many people would disagree with me on that, like James White, who I love, and I disagree with on this point, and Greg Nichols, who I love, and I disagree with on this point. I would be with the other Reformed Baptists. So I'll get the Reformed Baptist guys fighting, and then I'll just leave and do my own thing, you know. <clears throat> but I, I agree more with um, I agree more with guys like Pascal Denault and uh, Nehemiah Cox and John Owen's view of of uh, of the of the Mosaic Covenant, which I've thought about it long and hard, and as much as I can tell, it seems to me very clearly that the Mosaic Covenant was some sort of republication or reiteration of the covenant of works. It doesn't manifest to me a grace, a grace character, a grace principle that's operating mainly in the covenant of, of Moses or the covenant with Israel. I think it is very much a do-this-and-live covenant. You know, I mean, I think that fits really in perfectly with, I think it's kind of, um, I think it's a major oversight for somebody to look at Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, where that's where God gives you either promise of life or promise of curse, right? And to look at those chapters and think, you know, what's being said here is that, you know, Israel's really in a covenant of grace. I don't think so. I think it's much more operating along the works principle, right, of obedience for life, and then the question becomes, well, what kind of life? Well, let me just read some verses to you. It says in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, it says, you know, and this commandment, which which was to result in life, see that? Romans chapter 7, verse 10, the commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. So by obeying the commandment of God, you should live. That's the design of the covenant uh, of the commandments. God's law is meant to confirm your righteousness, but when you violate it, it produces death. You see? That's what. And then that's why he says in Romans uh, chapter 10 verse 5, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Yeah. Uh, you can live by the law if you obey it. It's a simple principle. You find it throughout all of all of Paul's letters. And it ultimately goes back to Leviticus chapter 18. It goes back to the law itself. So you shall keep my statutes. This is Leviticus 18 verse 5. That's kind of a crucial, crucial text regarding this very point. It says, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So then the only question that comes back to us is what kind of life is being asserted here? Well, what does it mean that he will live? Well, this is this is another debated point. Some theologians would say, well, the life that's being promised in the law is eternal life, absolutely eternal life. So had somebody obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly or all of God's law, you would live, live eternally. Um, I take a different position. I think that the life that's being promised there is more national life. It deals with Israel's national election. It deals with Israel's prosperity in the land, not uh, eternal life. But, you know, this is one of those hypothetical situations that will never be realized, so it's almost in the sense of moot point, right? Yes, sir? And I kind of see, that I guess, when I look at Ephesians 6, which is Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That's right. Good, good scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of see that too. Like when you see um, the violation of God's law, you see that the penalty for violating God's law is worked out primarily on a national scale. How, where, what event proves that to us? No, the captivity as Israel is in exile. Right. They're being they've been kicked out of the promised land. Why? Because they violated the law. Another reason why I think that um, the Mosaic covenant is also a um, it's also a direct uh, sort of there's a direct analogy between the covenant of works and the covenant of Moses is because the Bible says so. (laughs) Look at Hosea chapter six. Right. This is a verse that we've seen often. Uh, if you're willing, if you're willing to overlook uh, some of the attempts by some scholars, who I think have failed miserably to do this, but to try to tell us that this means something other than what the Bible actually says here, um, then you have a really strong scripture. Verse seven says, "Like Adam, Ket Adam." The Hebrew is Ket Adam. It's a very simple phrase. It's a very, very simple phrase. It's, it's really not that complicated. It, it means exactly what it says. Like Adam. That is the most simple literal translation of the Hebrew phrase. Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. When did Adam transgress a covenant? In Genesis. <laughs> In the covenant of works. Right? Yes, sir. Just a I guess more of a translation question. Translations like the King James, and I'm not sure about the, uh, the older uh, ASV in the older English, say like man they transgressed. That's right, yeah. Like man they transgressed. Then it comes down to like what men? Like you know what I mean, that's so ambiguous. I mean, like the Amalekites, I mean, like the Canaanites. Like who? Who, 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 who could Hosea possibly have had in mind? Others would translate it at Adam. And Adam is actually an Old Testament city, small, obscure little town where Israel sinned. But there again, it seems really out of place, especially in the context of Hosea. Hosea is writing to Israel on the heels of the Assyrian captivity. It has nothing to do with the city of Adam. It's just kind of, it doesn't really fit you see what I'm saying? No, I, I think this is exactly what it's saying. It's just that just like Adam, there was treachery. Wow, they have dealt treacherously against me. And you know what this is right here? This is according to Jv Fesco. This is a covenant lawsuit that God is dealing out to His people, uh, and, and and that covenant lawsuit is almost con- is almost conceived in the context of a of a certificate of divorce, where God is divorcing His people. Remember, He even says that right? Uh, just look through, I mean, Hosea is all about marriage, right? Go marry a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry. What is God trying to prove with that extreme example is he's trying to prove that he is married to an adult, to an adulterous wife who will not stop committing adultery. And God is saying, forget it. I, I'm going to uh, get a people who are not even my people, basically a bride who's not even my bride, and they will be the sons of God, right? Um, what else do we have? What other ways are we to think that the covenant of redemption is promising life? Well, obviously I would think the strongest one would have to do with the Adam-Christ dualism in the Bible, right? That, that, that just as just as Christ... Promises us eternal life based on his work. So, Adam, too, had he obeyed, he would produce life for his people and would have been granted life. I leave that, I'm going to leave that off because we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. Um, We have all the justification in the world to connect Christ with Adam and Adam with Christ because Scripture calls Adam a type of him who is to come. And so we're back to the triangle again, aren't we? We're, we're, we're back to this, you guys. Here's Adam. We'll call him Adam 1. And here's Adam 2. Me and Joseph Urban had this cute little debate. He kept on wanting to call Adam the second Adam. I said, no, 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 no. The scripture says he is the last Adam. And so we're like, no, 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 it's the second Adam. So we went in and oh, it calls them both. He's the second man. No, no, I actually won the debate because it calls him the second man, but it explicitly calls him the ha eschatos adam, the last Adam. says, so I won. <laughs> um, yeah, he's the he's the second Adam. So, But what is the scripture saying in terms of typology? What are we looking at? Can somebody look it up real quick? Romans chapter 5, I think it's verse 14. Is it? says uh, nevertheless death reigned from adam unto moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of adam who is a type of him who has come that's right that's right so he is a type of him who is to come so his typical pattern goes back to we can say like i don't know what do you want to say adam 2 which is really up here which is Really Adam won <laughs> if you think about it, right? He's the original typical pattern after which Adam was patterned. Um yeah. Yeah. So clear as mud. Yeah. Any questions? We're running out of time. I wanna wanna try to anybody any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Oh no. So, Good. The Bible says to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking why you wrote that in the top of the I missed it. Adam 1. He's like the archetypical Adam. This is the technical. He's the archetype. Right? Arch. Archetype. Right? A-R-C-H-E. He's the archetype. Comes from the Greek word archais. first. So he's the first type. He's the original type. He's what um, he's what uh, you know. God told Moses he is the he's the pattern, right? He is the pattern. He is the original mold. Who the Adam in heaven? In the reality of heaven, in the mind of God in eternity, He is the true Adam. He creates a man to be a historical Adam. He needs to be, uh, He needs to be fulfilled because He failed. So when the anti type comes, the fulfillment of the type comes, what we're seeing is the manifestation of the original pattern coming down to earth. That's what's happening. Right? You get an eye. I know me too. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Oh, I get it now. (laughs) There's so much here. There is so much here. And there is so little time. I feel like I keep saying that. Somebody told me that. You keep saying that we're running out of time. We are running out of time. Okay, so we're going to get to probation, penalty, and prophetic sacrament, Lord willing, next week, okay? Um, Let me pray for us. We'll go to worship. Father, again, we thank you so much for your grace and for your word. And we just pray that you would please help us to understand um, that on the basis of a covenant that you made with the original man, you revealed to us how holy you really are and how much your law is a demand that you place on our lives. And Lord, we confess openly before you that like Adam, we have broke the covenant. We've broken the covenant. We are not covenant keepers, we are covenant breakers. And we are so grateful that you would send Jesus the the true and last Adam to fulfill all of your covenant demands and to do that in our place, Lord, as our surety, as our guarantee. What what grace lord um we pray that you would help us to celebrate your grace in Jesus name amen mm.